got another one for you. Any of you guys are going to be coming next Sunday to help with uh, the cleanup upstairs? I don't think baby Jesus is up there. I've been up there for three years running, and I've never seen baby Jesus upstairs. So um, hate to disappoint you, but I think he's left the house. Um, if you will grab your Bibles and turn with me to the John chapter 3. I'm going to be focusing on verses 22 through 36, but we're going to read the entire chapter. So if you'll stand with me in honor of God's word. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. And Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. How can these things be? asked Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Jesus replied. Truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we've seen, but you don't accept our testimony. If I told you about earthly things you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who is descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one, the only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light of God has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so, this, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives um, by the truth comes to the light, so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside, where he spent time with them and baptized. John was also baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was plenty of water um, there. People were coming and being baptized, since John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one who you testified about, the one who <clears throat> was with you across the Jordan, he's baptizing, and everyone is going to him. John responded, No one can receive anything unless it's been given to him from heaven. You yourself can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has a bride is the groom. 
But the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The one who comes from above is above, and the one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies of what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For the one whom God sent speaks God's word, since he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. You can be seated. Father, I pray that you do that which only you can do, and that is to bring life to your word. Thank you again for giving us your son, um, the most precious gift that anyone could ever receive. There is nothing that we could ever do um, to repay you, and there's nothing that we could have ever done to warrant such an amazing gift. It's all by grace. Father, I pray now that you would speak through me, that you would illuminate your word to your people. And Father, above all, that you would be glorified in and through your church. I pray this in Jesus' name. John wrote this gospel with a specific purpose in mind. You can find that purpose in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Belief in Jesus. The very belief that was spoken of in verses 15 through 18 of this chapter. This was the intended purpose in John writing this book to make much of him, to reveal who and what he is. You may think that this is a no-brainer. Why else would he write this gospel if it wasn't to reveal Jesus? But the problem is that too many Christians, blood-bought, true sons and daughters of God, live not knowing who their Savior is. They live small, insignificant lives because they serve a small, insignificant God. This wasn't the God that John uh, the Apostle knew. The God that he knew was magnificent, was awesome, and worthy of all praise and honor. This is why he wrote his gospel, so that we would believe. And not just believe in a generic way that Jesus is Lord, but more specifically that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah who would consummate the betrothal to God. To believe that Jesus is the Son of God, in whom alone could the propitiation for sins be made. He wrote the gospel to con uh, contrast Jesus with all the shadows of the previous covenant, and to show him as a fulfillment or reality of those shadows. It's really easy to miss this if we chunk up the Bible. Um, all too often, those chapter breaks, verse numbers, and even the red letters all conspire against us in seeing the intended purpose of the meaning of Scripture. In fact, 
because of these man-imposed help, there are a lot of people that say that this portion of Scripture doesn't even actually belong in, in, the, in the Gospel here. They say that it's misplaced, that it doesn't flow with the rest of the Scripture at this point. They actually missed the intended purpose of John writing this, um, this section of Scripture. The, John, the, Apostle Paul, uh, the Apostle John said that these verses that are in the Bible are just selected events of Jesus' life. They aren't everything he ever did. And they're written to us for a specific reason. And we know this because in most of them, he'll give us a story and then he'll actually explain it. He did this in verse 11 of chapter 2 in telling us that when Jesus turned water into wine, this was the first of his signs that brought him glory. And because of that, the disciples believed in him. He did it again in verses 21 through 22 of chapter 2 when he tells us that Jesus is the true temple above um, surpassing the earthly temple, which is what he meant when he said that you tear this temple down and in three days I'll raise it back up. And he did it again in verse 16 of chapter 3, starting in verse 16 of chapter 3, when he explains the amazing love that God has shown us through the propitiation of his son. And he does it again in this story. He reveals the preeminence of Jesus over all men. Now, this is the only gospel that doesn't give um, the title, the Baptist, to John, the son of Zechariah. The Apostle John knew all about the son of Zechariah. He knew him. He knew his ministry. He knew the importance of that ministry. But he saw the son of Zechariah just as he did all the rest of the shadows of the Old Covenant. And he knew that while John's ministry was to baptize people, that the true Baptist would soon be coming that would baptize people with more than just water. John, the son of Zechariah, knew this to be true himself. As we're told in Luke's gospel, when people came to him and said, Are you the Christ? His answer to them was, I baptize you in water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's Luke 3, 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul knew this to be true too. In Acts 19, 4, he explains that John's baptism was just a baptism of repentance in preparation to believe on the one that was coming after him. And that one is Jesus the Christ. Finally into our text today. Um, verses 22 through 24 are given to us as a, as a transition point, providing background details into our story. This too is a common feature in the Gospel of John. This transition point, however, is interesting in that it not only just talks about Jesus and his disciples, but John also brings back into our focus John the Baptist and his disciples. This transition point also allows us to focus on the last of the Old Testament prophet, John, and the last of the Old Covenant signs, his baptism. Now the question has been raised, why didn't John the Baptist just close up shop and throw him with Jesus when he showed up on the scene? The answer is that John the Baptist was given a calling by God. He was told to baptize, and that's what he was going to do. John was seemingly fearless, taking on the religious system that was at hand, calling the people to repentance. 
Now, prior to John's ministry, God had been silent with his people for over 300 years, with the last words being given by the prophet Malachi. He said, Remember the law of my servant Moses, and the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And I will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with, with a decree of utter destruction. Malachi 4, 4 through 6. 300 years of silence, and then John the Baptist. If we think that the ministry of John the Baptist was just about calling people to repentance and baptizing, then I think that we've actually missed something. And in fact, if his ministry has only called people to repentance and to holiness, why didn't he just point them to the law? There was already a religious system in place to deal with sin and make atonement. So why was John sent to baptize? The answer is that there was a new covenant about to come into place. A full revelation of all the previous covenants. The promised Christ was coming. And practically, he continued to baptize because God sent people to him. And there was water. But we need to be clear about something. When the disciples of Jesus were, what they were doing when they were baptizing people, because we're told in our text that um, Jesus was baptizing. Chapter 4 clears that up. Jesus wasn't baptizing. His, only his disciples were. But this was not a re-baptizing of the people that John had already baptized. Nor was it a baptism to repentance. Jesus' disciples were doing the same things that John and his disciples were doing, preparing the bride for the coming groom. Verses 25 and 26 set up some of the last recorded words of John the Baptist. And in them, we're presented with a situation that posed a real problem for John, at least in the eyes of his disciples. But they came to him and they said, Rabbi, he who is, was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, He's baptizing, and all are going to him. Their conversation with this unnamed man must have raised questions concerning the validity of John's baptism, especially in light of the fact that the disciples of Jesus were now baptizing as well. We're told in chapter 1 of this book that John made it clear that he wasn't the Christ. He didn't even claim the office of Elijah, but he would only say about himself, I'm a voice of one crying out the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John's disciples had missed the message of their teacher. They allowed ministry to become their mistress. They had become more enthralled with the, the one that was heralding the coming Messiah rather than the now-arrived Messiah. John answered them, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourself bear witness to me that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must increase, decrease. His response to his disciples stands in stark contrast to their complaint. He wasn't jealous. He wasn't envious. And in fact, he was rejoicing over the very events that were causing them anxiety. Their focus was on people, on numbers. 
on the size of the crowds that were being drawn, both to John and to Jesus. They could see where they had once been part of the greatest show in town. Their preeminence was fading. The strange clothes and diet that um, bore John's ministry and set him apart had seemingly lost its appeal. And what was worse is in their minds, the disciples of Jesus had hijacked his message. But look at what the way that John responded to his disciples. He didn't even address the issue that they brought to him, but he went straight to the heart of the matter. They thought that John's ministry was about John. His answer, that a person can't receive even one thing unless it's given from heaven, revealed their misplaced allegiance to him, illuminated their desire for self-exaltation, and even their love of ministry. That all was from God was a truth that they had failed to either grasp or remember. We need to hear this truth as much as they did. For all too often, we are proud of our accomplishments, our business acumen, our physical strength, our mental agility, and maybe even our good reputation in the community. Now, we're much too poised and polished to actually say these things out loud, but man, do we sure feel them. We fail to acknowledge that every ability that any of us has is a gift from God. None of these things have we produced within ourselves. At best, we have merely built on the foundation that God has laid. But more importantly, if we're called by God as his, then everything we do, everything we do, should be done for his glory, not ours. John said that he had been sent from God. The word that he used for sent is translated from the Latin into the English as vocation. This is how John saw his calling to call people to, bat- or call people to repentance and baptize them. He saw it as his vocation or his job. We who hold to a under- uh, reformed understanding of the word of God should be able to say the same thing about whatever it is that God has called us to do. No matter what we do practically, this is the vocation that God has given us, at least for this moment in time. Sadly, all too often, we don't see our vocation as our calling, but merely as a means to an end. We could bemoan our station. We long for something better. We're not content with what the Lord has given us, or what we do is we just covet what others have. Or we just think that God isn't being fair with us. This is the sin that disciples of John found themselves in. They were being consumed by this. And John the Baptist wasn't going to have it. He knew what his calling was. And because of that, he knew what their calling was as well. And he was content with his vocation, with his job. Not because it was fulfilling or because he received accolades from it, but because it was from above, and it served the purpose of the one that gave it to him. He tries once again to refocus their attention back to the reality when he tells them that what they must have heard a thousand times, I am not the Christ. He's just the forerunner to the Christ. He's the herald of the conquering king, that had been, and he had been sent before him to announce his coming. 
And he heralds that coming when he points to Christ and saying, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The complaint that all were going to Christ was for his disciples a point of contention. But for John, he saw it as an outward manifestation of the truth that he had been heralding. The Messiah had come and the bride was going to his, their groom. We are told in verses like Jeremiah 2, 2 and Isaiah 54, 4 through 6 that God had betrothed the people to himself. This wasn't a temporal betrothal that could be annulled. For God said through the prophet Hosea, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. Hosea 2.19. But the Jews had made a religion out of God. They had developed a set of rules surrounding God's covenants and then made elevated offices for men. Now these men spent their whole lives instructing people on how to keep their set of rules um, in fulfilling God's covenant. To them, the betrothal to God in righteousness and justice was fulfilled by men in keeping the law. John stood in stark contrast to that. His ministry pointed to the truth of how the covenants between God and man were seen by God. God had betrothed a people to himself in righteousness and justice. His righteousness and his justice. In steadfast love and mercy. His love, his mercy. God was a covenant maker. God was a covenant keeper. He is the bridegroom. The ministry of John was a herald that something new was happening, that the old covenant was about to change. The relationship through mediation was about to end. The offices of prophet, priest, and king were merely to shadows, and they would be fully realized in the coming Messiah. Unlike his disciples, John rejoiced the bride was going to the groom. That's why he was able to say, therefore, my joy is now, com is my, my joy is now complete. Then he utters what is probably his most famous statement of his life. He must increase and I must decrease. The Apostle John now does what he's done before in his gospel. He breaks into the story with an explanation of the story. Everything from this verse forward is not actually part of the story. It's just an explanation of, of what we have actually just read. This time he makes three statements concerning the preeminence of Christ. The first is he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from above is above all. Earlier I had said that God had been silent with his people for 300 years, preparing his children, causing them to long for him. And then out of the blue, John the Baptist shows up on the scene. What an amazing thing that must have been for the children of Israel to have this prophet, this Old Testament prophet, show up in their midst. And is there any wonder that so many people came to his baptism? But John is merely a herald of the coming king. In those days when a king went to war, and the leaders in those countries actually did go to war, um, but when a king went to war, he could be gone for months, even years. And the people in the country would wait. They would just long to hear something about when the king was coming back. When the herald would come back telling them the king is coming, that would be a time for celebration. 
preparation for the welcoming of the conquering king. The herald who brought the good news wasn't the good news. He wasn't celebrated for his heroics, and he wouldn't be elevated beyond his station. He was merely a servant to the king. This is how we're supposed to look at John the Baptist. And in fact, all men of God. This is how he saw himself. And this is how he desired to be seen. This is also an explanation of why John said, I must decrease while Jesus increased. The Apostle, Paul, the Apostle John may have been directly thinking of John the Baptist, but this truth applies to everyone else as well. We may speak truth. The prophets, including John, may have spoken truth, but they all, just like me and everyone else, we all speak in an earthly way. We are at best second-hand witnesses. We proclaim a truth that, um, that, um, of concerning God that we know to be true, the truth of his gospel, but we do it only through an imparted knowledge. We have been given the Spirit of God to enable us to know and say that Jesus is Lord, and we've been given the Word of God to understand and to preach this truth, but we hold these truths and his Spirit in jars of clay. This stands in stark contrast to Jesus. When he speaks on any subject, he speaks with authority. Think of the time when he was in the synagogue and he was preaching, and the people were amazed because he didn't speak like a scribe. He spoke with authority. We maybe have been given the word of God, but he is the word of God. When he speaks, it is revelation first-hand revelation. It is a telling of what he knows completely, fully, intimately. And for that reason, the all in these verses, unlike the all of John 3.16, does mean all. It is completely inclusive of everything. Nothing is left out. Matter of fact, John uses the same word three times in these verses just to make sure that we get it in our heads what he means when he says that he is above all. And in fact, it's nothing more than a, reiter a reiteration of what he said in verse 3 of chapter 1. There he said, All things were made through him, Christ, and without him was not anything made that was made. The second statement made by John concerning Jesus begins in verse 32. He bears witness to what we have seen and heard, yet no one receives this testimony. Whoever receives this testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the word of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now John contrasts, uh, contrasts Jesus with all prophets, including John the Baptist in these verses, because every prophet had been given a measure of the Holy Spirit as God seemed prudent for their ministry. But no prophet ever been able to give the Spirit. They had all just been recipients of the Spirit. They might have worked through the power of the Spirit, but they were never Lord of the Spirit. This stands in stark contrast to Jesus, who gives the Spirit without measure to all who are called of God. It is only God that can give his Spirit. For anyone to reject Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, 
is to reject God completely. There's also another important truth that we need to realize from these verses. There are Christians who read the Old Testament and they look at the relationships like that Abraham had with God. Or they long for the intimacy that Moses had with God. Or they long to be given a heart like David had for God. But these men had only been given the Spirit to the measure of their ministry. Their relationship with God, no matter how intimate it was, is far inferior to the relationship that we have with God now. The prophets were given the Spirit to the measure that God deemed prudent. For us, for us, Jesus has given us his Spirit without measure. We have been given the complete revelation of the Lord through his word, something that the Old Testament prophets never had. We can know God more intimately now than any man could ever have known him prior to the New Covenant. And for this reason, we can know Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, our Savior and Mediator. We can know him on an intimate level, and we can see him for who and what he is. John has made it clear that no one can compare to Jesus and that he is the only person that, would, that we should ever fawn over. But there's another reason John wanted to get, our, get through our heads that Jesus is the creator of all things. Because only Jesus could give first-hand testimony of God, of heaven, of the Spirit, of the kingdom, something that he did freely, which was his testimony. And what did man do with this testimony? We, in our free will, rejected it. All of us. No one received his testimony. This is the indictment against all men. The truth of God was revealed by God, and everyone rejected it. This is the human condition, the truth concerning all natural men, and even some of us sitting here today. There's one final distinction that John wants to make in this section of Scripture. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son won't even see life. Instead, the wrath of God is on him. Now there's a contrast within the contrast um, that John just made. There is no, there is, uh, uh, no other name un under heaven which man can be saved, save Jesus Christ. But there is a contrast to all men or this is a contrast to all men and all, re all religions. But there's also another contrast within humanity. An internal and irrevocable contrast. This contrast is not based on race, on sex, on age, or anything else save one thing. What did you do with my son? Those that believe on the son, who see him as beautiful and wonderful, have eternal life. Those that don't, won't even see life. But believing Christ is more than just a mental nod in a generic way to a genie that's more like a, a genie in a bottle than the risen king that he truly is. Belief in Jesus is marked by obedience to his word. The word that was given him by his father. The word that testifies that God is true. The father had given all things to Jesus. Jesus has given his, his spirit in full measure. And through him, we're able to say that Jesus is Lord. And through him, 
we're being sanctified where Jesus increases and we decrease. But we need to pay special, care, uh, special attention to the matter in which John words what happens to those who, who don't obey Jesus. If we're to understand the preeminence of Christ. He doesn't just say that those that reject Jesus would just be condemned. And he doesn't say that they will just won't enter into life. He says they won't even see life. See, Jesus isn't just the door into heaven. He's not just the path to righteousness. He is life. Outside of him, there is no life. There is nothing but death. This is where so many of us go off the rails. We view the salvation of Jesus as a means to an end. And even if the end is heaven, this understanding is diametrically opposed to the truth of who Jesus is. He is not the means to an end. He is the end. He's not, um, he is the prize, not the wrapping around the prize. But because we see Jesus as less than he is, all too often we'll read scripture or we'll hear a sermon and we'll think, what does this mean to me? What can I get out of this? We miss the prize completely and just hang, hang on to the, re- the wrapping paper going, man, isn't this cool? This is what happened to the disciples of John. This is the error that John the Baptist and the Apostle John both wanted to safeguard us against. Religion and religious things have value and serve a purpose in a walk. But it's only in Jesus that we have eternal life. In him. There's one final contrast that I want to point out to you. We're told outside of the mediation of Christ that the wrath of God is already set on us. There's not going to be a heavenly courtroom where you get to go and defend yourself before God or hire a team of lawyers to try and tell him exactly why um, his wrath shouldn't be set on you since you're innocent or you're a victim. There is no appeal, no stay of execution. His wrath is as certain as death itself. If you can get out of dying, then you can stop worrying about the wrath of God. And don't discard, discount that wrath. I'm saying this because we're meant to actually contrast the wrath of God with the Son of God. That's terrifying. The Father loves the Son, and He's given all things into His hand. There is no greater sin against God than to disregard His beloved Son. Look around you at the amazing creation that He's made. Look at the beauty and wonder of life. The love that He showers on all of His creation through His common grace. Look how amazingly intricate and detailed his creation is. Everything from the microscopic enzyme to the farthest planet in the galaxy. They're all fearfully and wonderfully made. And all of his creation, it's all this beautiful, this intricate, and this wonderfully made. And all of his creation was made from the overflow of the love found within the Trinity. Just the overflow of it. God has not put any less thought, any less detail, any less strength, or any less 
um, um, love into his wrath. His wrath is as righteous as his goodness, as full and robust as his mercy, as complex and intricate as his creation, and as eternal as his love for his Son. The more that we see the beauty of Christ, the more that we're amazed at his love, at his strength, the more our hearts realize the depth of his mercy and grace, the more that we'll understand just how terrible the wrath of God is and why it is that the Son of God sweat drops of blood at just the very thought of it. It is no small thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your Son, the greatest gift you could ever have given us. And then on top of that, Lord, you gave us your word that we would know your Son, and we could know your Son. You gave us your Spirit that illuminates our heart. Father, I pray that, um, that we would see your Son as the most beautiful thing that we have ever seen. Father, I pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate our hearts to see him in that way. Father, that you would cause us to love him in such a way that everything else just fades in importance. Father, bless your church in this way. Thank you for loving us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.